Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger. Today on Better Off, author Rana Faruhar. Her book is Makers and Takers, How Wall Street Destroyed Main Street. Show up to the annual meetings, write letters, let these CEOs know that you understand that what's good for Wall Street is not necessarily good for Main Street. Get involved in your local community. Um, support credit unions, support community banks. Basically, you know, get in- involved at the ground level. I think that's the best thing you can do. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. Well, you know, despite stock markets reaching all-time highs, how are American businesses doing? Well, according to our guest, Rana Faruhar, they are falling to new lows. The reason is that the golden age of U.S. innovation and capitalism has given way to what Rana Faruhar calls financialization, Rana's book is Makers and Takers, How Wall Street Destroyed Main Street. She's also the global business columnist and associate editor at the Financial Times and CNN's global economic analyst. We've had a number of guests come on this program and talk about this very topic. But Rana really has drawn a line in the sand about what has happened to American business. She divides the world into makers or those companies that serve the real economy and takers, those companies or people who are using financial engineering to juice short-term profits and, as a result, enrich their shareholders and themselves. Rana is a fantastic storyteller. We're going to cover a lot of ground, not just what's in her book, but what's going on in the global economy and where certain risks lie right now. So stay tuned. Rana Faruhar, she's our guest on Better Off. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Rana Faruhar, welcome to Better Off. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Now, uh, let me just be clear that I have previously interviewed Rana for my radio show, but podcast listeners, you are in for something really special. (laughs) So Rana, her book is called Makers and Takers, How Wall Street Destroyed Main Street. That's declarative. It is. And we're going to get to that book in a second. (laughs) Rana, we start the program every single episode with a question. You ready? Yep, I am. What's the best financial decision you've ever made? Putting my retirement money in an index fund. Boom! Boom. Leaving it there. Forgetting about it. I love that. (laughs) It's really not more complicated than that, is it? Not really. I mean, you know, I I will caveat that by saying that at some point we're going to have a market correction. We know that. You know, might be coming this fall, as a matter of fact. Um, You know, and at that point, the index funds are going to go down. It's going to be difficult. But, you know, I'm not going to retire for 20 years. so I'm not worried about it. Right. That's exactly it. And and as much as you can sort of automate everything, yeah. that's what I'm all over. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Uh, okay, Rana, the book is phenomenal. It's available in paperback, so we'll link to that. Don't worry. Thank you. So how are American businesses failing us, and how did Wall Street destroy Main Street? Well, you know, I would start by saying business didn't start failing us. It was Wall Street that took business in the wrong direction. And that goes to your second question, you know, how did this change happen? Well, if you go back to the 1970s, Wall Street was there basically to invest in business. You know, the majority of what the largest banks in the country were doing was lending money to new businesses, uh, you know, to people that wanted to start enterprises and, and grow jobs. 
that's what Adam Smith, the father of modern capitalism, actually expected the financial system to do. It was supposed to sort of sit in the middle and hand out money to productive enterprise. That has changed wildly in the last 40 years. One of the killer stats in my book that I always love to share is that these days, only 15 percent of the money coming out of the largest financial institutions in this country is going into new business investment. That is staggering. And here's why. Because every self-perpetuating Wall Street explanation for its existence is all about we provide the capital necessary. And you know, you've seen commercials for all the big firms. Hey, we financed this company and it built a plant. It created 300 jobs. But that's not really how this is going down. So what is Wall Street doing with the 85 percent of the money? (laughs) Good question. Um, They're trading with it. It is existing in a sort of closed loop of wealthy individuals and wealthy companies buying and selling stocks, bonds, houses. I mean, it's it's this sort of inner sanctum, this circle that money loops around in, making the wealthy wealthier, frankly, um, and not really enriching Main Street. Now, when you look at the, the landscape of sort of American capitalism, there are companies that do serve the real economy. Absolutely. And you have called them the makers. Those are the ones who do stuff. Yep. I'm wondering, the, the from the takers' standpoint, the Wall Street guys, what are they doing to those makers, or what have they done yeah. over the last few decades that's changed how the... The yeah. companies that really were doing stuff, for how, sure. how have they changed them? You know, the easiest way, the easiest lens into that is to look at public companies versus private companies. So um, one of the really staggering facts, again, in my book, is that private companies, many of which are family-owned and run, invest about twice as much into Main Street, really productive things, building new factories, training workers, spending money on R&D, twice as much apples for apples as public companies do. So why are pump- public companies not investing? Where is their money going? Well, it's going back into the market. Um, the majority of free cash that big American public companies have had on hand in the last few years has gone to buying back their own stock, something called share buybacks. Mm. Um, now, why do we care about that? Well, basically, it makes the top 20% of the population that owns the majority of stock wealthier, but it doesn't necessarily result in anything productive happening in the real economy. And that's a big deal. And Wall Street pushes that. Basically, it demands that because those those buybacks always jack up the share price of a company. Wall Street loves it when share prices go up. The C-suite of corporate America loves that. I mean, CEOs and CFOs, these guys are mostly, and they are guys mostly, mm. um, as we know. They're, they're Mostly white guys, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're mostly paid in stock. You know, somewhere between 15 and 80 percent of their comp is in stock. They want that share price to go up. That's what's most important to them. You know, uh, we had uh, Slate Money's Felix Salmon on the program. Love him. And uh, he was talking a lot about how in other countries, the way that companies exist is different than in the U.S. And I know that you've covered international yeah. companies and the global economy. How come? Why Why mm. is that? Why is it that a, a German company seems to be a better citizen of its municipality yeah. or its country? Yeah, it's such a great question. I actually lived and worked in Europe for about 10 years, and I study the German model very carefully, which, by the way, I will say the Trump administration, the Secretary of Labor, have actually spent a long time um, since you know uh, the president came into office studying that model, too. It's kind of being held up as an example. What's different is, you know, in America, share price is considered 
the ultimate measure, in some ways really the only measure, of what's good, what's happening in a company. If the share price is going up, everything's fine. That's the conventional wisdom. In Germany, it's about stakeholder capitalism. And what I mean by that is they consider that not only shareholders but workers, um, civic leaders, managers, all have a say in what happens in the company. And all of them have to be doing well in order for the company to be considered a success. That means wages have to stay high and be rising. That means that the local community that the company exists in needs to be doing well, and that company needs to be serving that larger community. That's their measure. And I actually think we're on the the cusp of a major shift in this country where a lot of business leaders are starting to think that that's the better model. Think about the economy that we live in. We live in an economy that is made up 70% of consumer spending. Since the early 1990s, most of us haven't gotten a raise in real terms. So think about that math. Nobody has more money in their pockets, and yet we're depending on consumer spending for the economy to grow. If we don't change that math, it stops working at some point, and that's actually bad for the companies themselves. Uh, yeah, and I remember that when we were there were some conversations around this um, that that CEO of Goldman Sachs, Lloyd Blankfein, mm-hmm. said that like inequality is a big problem for every single U.S. company. Yeah. I get that. And I understand also how you might be optimistic because we just had a populist man elected yeah. into office. Who ironically. Was, ironically, yeah. who um, promised that he would take care of Main Street. But I don't see any of his appointees yeah. that would give us that signal. So make me more yeah. optimistic. I'm, you know, I'm Jewish, well. so I'm naturally <laughs> pessimistic. <laughs> Uh, well, there's many. If you're Jewish, there's many reasons to be pessimistic about this administration. <laughs> but um, you know, it's interesting because, in, ironically, even though I was no fan of Steve Bannon, very disturbed by his you know social principles. He was the guy that actually was the economic nationalist within the administration. He was the one saying, yeah, we do need to raise wages and, and create uh, you know, uh, more robust communities here at home. Now that he's out, it's the Goldman Sachs guys have taken over. You know, It's basically the Trump administration at this point is surrounded by people that are essentially kind of laissez-faire, trickle-down economic conventional Republicans. And the truth is that that model hasn't worked in 20 years. This idea that you can just tax cut your way to growth, which, you know, the administration is still pushing. The only thing they've got on the table for the fall is tax reform. They're all promising that, you know, if we cut taxes, the economy is going to grow. It hasn't worked in 20 years. We need a new model. I'm not even sure it ever worked in 20 20 years ago, because when it worked, Mm. it was a short term little sugar high. No, for sure. For sure. So so here's a question. If Wall Street took business in the wrong direction, Mm. what will it take to get us on a different trajectory where Main Street businesses, these private companies, what will it take for us to have that kind of uh, ethos seep into these public companies? So there's some low-hanging fruit. Um, You know, we're talking a lot about tax these days. What we should be really thinking about is what are the ways in which our tax code incentivizes the wrong behavior? You know, Wall Street is built on debt. And our president, of course, as we know, loves debt. Um, But debt is the lifeblood of finance. It's what finance lives on. It wants to create more debt because it can make money creating debt. That's not great for companies. It incentivizes them to do all the wrong things. If we change the tax code to actually say, let's reward companies. Companies that are investing in R&D, in their workers, uh, in the real economy, in Main Street, that would be a good thing. So that's one bit of low-hanging fruit. The other thing, though, is a little more kind of thinking, and that's that we have to change the narrative. We have had this narrative for 40 years that what's good for Wall Street is good for Main Street. 
It is not. Jill, I know we agree on this. You know, in a way, we could pull out a thousand statistics, but it's true. I think that that pendulum is beginning to turn. And actually, you know, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders were really, you know, pushing back against that in the primary season last year. I think going into the 2018 midterms and the 2020 presidential election, I think you're going to see the Democrats pushing really hard on that narrative. It's going to be interesting to see um, a little bit of that tax code tinkering. I don't believe that we are going to get some tremendous reform, right? Yes, so agreed. quote unquote reform, agreed. right? So I think you're going to get some targeted tax cuts. I agree that we we do need to use the tax code to incent properly. I was wondering, how would it be if we said, okay, there is a tax holiday for bringing, for yeah. repatriating your cash yeah. only if you spend it on wages or capital improvements? No shareholder buyback. I love it in theory. Never going to happen. Well, okay, yeah, policy-wise and, and politically maybe never going to happen, but let's say it could happen. I love the idea. It's very, very difficult in reality to track whether the money you know, is going to those things and whether or not it's a shell game. You know, companies could say, bring that money back, show that, yeah, they've built a new factory, they've got a worker training program, but then they could be shifting off their balance sheet money, more money to the Netherlands or to Ireland or to places that, you know, are basically um, uh, tax holiday type countries. So it's tricky. I would rather see um, if money was brought back that companies would have to make deposits in a public infrastructure bank and there'd be some public oversight, maybe public-private oversight together, uh, and invest of that money into the sort of things we need, like maybe fixing the BQE here in New York. <laughs> um, I'm going to the airport later, to, you know, this week. So I'm thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to our interview with Rana Faruhar, the author of Makers and Takers, How Wall Street Destroyed Main Street in just a minute. But, you know, I'm thinking about the difficulty in tracking so much of the finances of the world. Let me tell you where tracking is not really that hard. It's not that hard in your own personal financial life as long as you deal with companies that make it easy for you. That's why I'm so happy Betterment is the sponsor of this program. Betterment is the largest independent online financial advisor, and Betterment's service is designed to help improve your long-term returns and lower your taxes in the future. But the thing that I love about the Betterment platform is that everything really is transparent. Low, transparent advisory fees compared to the traditional financial service offerings you see out there. They use technology to help make investing easier. And none of this should be confusing. It shouldn't be frustrating. It certainly shouldn't be difficult to track. That's why you want to work with a company like Betterment. Yes, All investing involves risk. We know that. You get that. What's really important is to make your financial and investing life a lot easier. I think you could do that if you use Betterment. Better Off listeners can get up to six months managed for free. For more information, visit Betterment.com slash Better Off. Betterment, rethink what your money can do. And now back to our interview with Rana Faruhar. What is it that we can do to advance this? Is there something we should do as shareholders? Listen, a lot of people listening to the show are passive investors. Yeah, for sure. And they are using index funds. They're using robos. They're doing all the, you know, automatic investment platforms. That's really the kind of people that are attracted to this show. We're not getting the stock pickers these days. Well, that's Uh, good. So what should we do as investors? Is there something that we should demand of our companies? You know, 
I think you show, show up to the annual meetings, write letters, let these CEOs know that you understand that what's good for Wall Street is not necessarily good for Main Street. Also, write your congressperson. I think that there's a lot that can be done at the local level. You know, I mean, I, I am feeling optimistic today. I, you know, I've had a few cups of coffee. <laughs> and so I will say that even though the national story is not great, when I go out and visit cities, you know, Columbus, Ohio, um, Austin, Texas, I mean, there's a lot of places where communities, the financial community, um, uh, the public sector businesses are working together in ways that are more functional. Get involved in your local community. Um, support credit unions. Support community banks. Um, you know, uh, basically, you know, get in- involved at the ground level. I think that's the best thing you can do. So if you look at sort of the world today, I yeah. want to get a little macro on you. Um, We have slow growth around the world, but it's okay. Uh, Is there something that we should be thinking about? As you mentioned earlier in the show, that we could see a correction. Likely, it's been going on. This bull market's been going on for a long time, since March of 2009. But a correction is one thing. Is there anything that makes you nervous right now? Are there any black swans out there? I think that interest rate policy could shift a lot faster than people think. So to back up, you know, as as I'm sure that you've talked about on this show, in the last decade, the Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world have basically been driving the economy. They have dumped all, all told $30 trillion in the last decade into the global economy. That is the biggest single dump of easy money that's ever been done, like in the history of the world. Wow. Okay, so that has distorted prices. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one reason that, you know, all all of us that do have our money in index funds have enjoyed some great returns over the last few years, but nothing lasts forever. And already the Fed is saying, yeah, we're pulling pulling back. You know, the party's over. How quickly are they going to raise interest rates? Well, um, there's not a lot of inflation out there right now. So you could argue that, you know, maybe we're going to be in a sort of slow and steady interest rate hike a period of the next, next five years or so. But you could also argue at some point the Fed's going to say, look, there's something weird going on here. We don't know why inflation isn't rising, but asset prices are way out of whack. You know, the disconnection actually between Wall Street and Main Street is very profound right now. That creates bubbles. They're going to want to stop that from overheating. So they're going to hike up interest rates. That could lead to a sharp correction, particularly getting back to this idea of debt and how powerful and and, and difficult debt is. Um, record corporate debt bubble out there right now. So if interest rates hike up, that debt gets it's more expensive. You could see some companies falling into trouble. We've already seen corrections in uh, energy stocks and manufacturing stocks. Um, there could be a, a series of dominoes. So besides monetary policy, which could shift very dramatically, yeah. anything else that keeps you up at night? I mean, you cover the world. Should we be worried that, that, that China is going to implode for the you know 12th zillionth year in a row? We have to worry about China's growing too fast. Yeah. Is it? Um, China is absolutely in a debt bubble. If you look about it, the pace of uh, the increase in debt in China is about four times what we saw in the U.S. housing crisis. So it's like the Chinese housing bubble makes, you know, Florida or Arizona or the Inland Empire in California look like peanuts. OK, but it's a totally different economy, right? It's controlled by Beijing. You know, they can cover a lot of that debt. They've still got about, you know, two trillion in in cash reserves on hand. What worries me, frankly, is a political. It's North Korea. It's a political issue, and it's fascinating to me because I mean, here we have a nuclear power um, testing bombs, about to launch them onto long-range missiles. Markets, you know, a little bit of a tremor here and there, but nothing like, for example, when there was a nuclear disaster in Japan. I mean, that was a big deal in the markets for a while. 
So why do the markets not care? I think it's because they don't know how to price political risk. So they look at what they do know how to price, which is interest rates are still low. There's still a lot of money in the market. But to me, that divide actually makes things riskier because there is such a kind of see no evil attitude in the markets right now. And yet there there's political risk. North Korea is one thing, but, you know, just throw a dart. You know, the U, a lot of people are saying that the U.S. deserves some kind of emerging market discount on its assets because our political situation is so crazy. There's Venezuela as a failed state. There's a new Arab Spring brewing in Morocco. I mean, I could go on. But What about Brexit? Do I need to worry about Brexit anymore? It seems to go to the back burner, but it's still happening. It's on the back burner only because it's a slow burn, you know, mm. and this is something that's going to, I think it's going to leave Britain poorer and meaner, and it's bad for the, for the European um, project in general, but it's a five, 10-year thing. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sorry, I was getting, I was optimistic, and now you've turned But me. go to Harrods and, be, and yeah, yeah. spend some money, please. <laughs> you know, the exchange rate will probably be better. <laughs> I know. There is that. Uh, okay, so let me ask you another question. Um, what I want to understand is, in your book, you do have a little interesting conversation around MBA Think. Mm-hmm, yeah. And I would love to, for you to talk about that because I have been an outspoken opponent of MBAs. <laughs> and God, I get we, his, We've had a mind meld. Yeah. So I have garnered some lovely, nasty emails from people of who course. say that's terrible. Tell me why you're a little bit unnerved by the thinking process behind yeah. the MBA. Well, MBA education is out of date. Uh, you know, I came on to that chapter in my book because I had a really interesting conversation with Mark Bertolini, the head of Aetna. And um, we were sitting at dinner one night, and he said, you know, I ne- almost never hire from M- the top MBA programs these days. I just can't find the talent I need. And I said, well, why not? And he said, well, they're basically taught the sort of old-fashioned financialized thinking, you know, marshal your cash, keep all the cash on the balance sheet, treat your workers as expendable. But if you look out there in the world, as we've just been talking about, there's cash everywhere. We're awash in cash. There's plenty of money for anybody that wants it. What there's not is talent. Um, and so these MBA programs teach executives to come out in this sort of think in this very old line way, which isn't relevant anymore. Also, it teaches them to uh, cut costs, um, you know, out source work, uh, offshore labor, that creates risks. You know, look at the Rana Plaza factory disaster in Bangladesh a few years back when a factory collapsed and a bunch of big deal companies, Walmart, H&M, Zara, who, you know, didn't even know that their clothes were being made there because they'd outsourced so much and the risk was so far away. That's the kind of MBA thinking that I worry about. I also worry that um, the financial engineering of not just MBA programs, but venture capital and Mm. private equity, that it it pushes businesses and even like amazing private companies in perhaps the wrong direction. I was just thinking about this because I was looking at the price of Snap just for fun. Hmm. And that's uh, a good good example. and, And I thought to myself, hmm, this this may be a company that either went public at the wrong price or maybe should have remained private because it's unclear to me that the company got the best advice from the investment bankers or probably the folks on their board who wanted to cash out. Well, you know, it's interesting. I wrote a a column in the FT a few weeks back about this sort of weird market, secondary market in Silicon Valley right now, where you get a lot of venture capitalists bidding these firms up in the before they go public to valuations that are just insane. I mean, you know, what do these companies make? What real value are they creating? They're certainly not creating very many jobs. I mean, we could talk about that. Um, But so the idea is to, to 
increase the value of the company artificially, have it go public. These guys have already cashed out. The smartest venture capitalists have mostly cashed out of these firms before they go public. And you've got people like the Kuwaiti Sovereign Investment Fund in. I mean, that's not exactly the smart money in Silicon Valley, if you know what I mean. Um, So I think it's a little bit of a racket, the tech uh, IPO market right now. If you look at sort of the the pricing of these unicorns, whether it's an Uber or an Airbnb, Justified or not justified? I mean, those are real businesses. Yeah, they're real business. So I would make a distinction between, say, the dot-com boom bust of the late 1990s, early 2000s, and the tech bubble of now. I do think it's a bubble, and I'll explain why. Yes, these companies, it's not pets.com, right? I mean, they have money. They're they're actually making um, you know real services that people are buying. But the question is, uh, is this a Me Too game? I mean, just look at Facebook, for example. You know, Facebook is having problems for all kinds of reasons. Um, but you're already starting to see younger users on Facebook migrating to other services. So how long are these companies really going to be around? What if the regulatory environment changes? I've been writing a lot about this. I mean, big tech and its valuations are basically dependent on it being totally unregulated. But once you get to be a natural monopoly, which I believe the tech sector is, I mean, these companies have 85% of the advertising market. I don't know, if that's not a monopoly, I don't know what is, mm-hmm. then regulators come in and look, you're already seeing that happen in Europe. You're starting to see it happen in D.C. So that could change the entire valuation structure. Right. So um, Google seems like the greatest thing in the world, controls everything until someone puts a little bit of a speed bump or a series of speed bumps sure. and all of a sudden it doesn't look so good. So that would include Google, Facebook. Would you put Amazon in there? I would. I think that you can argue that all of those companies are natural monopolies and there's all kinds of regulation that's up for grabs. There's a bit of le- legislation up for grabs now, bipartisan and support um, to say that these companies shouldn't have complete um, uh, sort of free rides on who's doing what on their platforms. You know, they kind of consider themselves the town square. Well, we're creating a space, but we're not responsible. for It's total baloney. I mean, you know, if the FT was allowing, um, you know, criminals to advertise or do business on our website, you can better believe we'd be uh, in trouble. Um, Before we go, Rana, because you have to catch a a flight or a train or something, you're crazy. We started the program and I asked you your best financial decision. You said Mm. index funds, put it on autopilot. What's your worst? Oh, man. A credit card debt. I'm going to. Yeah. You're outing yourself. I'm outing myself. This is actually, this is a first. You're getting the scoop on this. When I (laughs) I graduated from college, I was $6,000 in credit card debt. And sadly, I can't even say it was because I was paying off student loans or something. It was. Jill, it was shoes. Mm. It was dinners. Mm. It was, you know, it was, pre- it was honestly, it was living, you know, above my means in Manhattan, and um, I got that debt paid down. I've never been in credit card debt since. Bad, bad. Don't. Do All it. right, that's a good one. Okay, I like that. Rana Faruhar is. Oh, wait a second. What's your official title there? You I are the what of of FT? A columnist and associate editor at the Financial Times. She's most importantly the author of Makers and Takers: How Wall Street Destroyed Main Street. It is available in paperback. You should go buy a copy. We will link to that in our show notes. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Really appreciate it. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. 
Okay, it's time for the listener question of the week. Remember, you've got two chances every week to get on the air with us. On Tuesdays, we've got our bonus call of the week. Then today, Thursdays, we've got the listener question of the week. You might be listening to this on the weekend. I don't know. I'm just saying we drop it at that time. We love the calls. We love to hear from you. Just shoot us an email, askjill at betteroffpodcast.com, and we'll get you on the air. Remember, this lets me flex my certified financial planner muscles. Remember, I'm the senior CFP board ambassador, so I love doing this. It's great. So please let us know if you've got a question. Very easy. Just send an email, askjill at betteroffpodcast.com. Right now, Katie's on the line from Virginia. Hello, Katie. What can we do for you? Hi, Jill. Thank you so much. Sure. So my question is this. I um, worked for a large corporation and no longer work there. I have left the company. But I received a packet in the mail about our pensions. Um, I was lucky enough to work for a company that offered a pension, Mm -hmm. and I'm fully vested in that. I was there for nine years, and I think five years was the point at which you become fully vested. That's good. Yeah, and and this is great because it's, in my eyes, almost free money. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got this packet in the mail, and it has three offers. Um, one is to take a lump sum in the fall of this year, and it's for just shy of $20,000. Okay. The next option is to take uh, a monthly, they call it a contingent annuity, mm-hmm. Um it's $65 for me per month for my life, and then $50 per month for my spouse's life. Okay. And then the third option is to just pretend that money doesn't exist, wait until I am of retirement age, and then they tell me in here at 55, I would get $220, or if I wait every year it goes up, at 65, it's $548. So my question is, what's the best plan of action, um, and which I think you would probably tell me to wait. <laughs> so my caveat to that, because my husband, that's exactly what he's saying. My, my caveat to that is, it's twofold. What if I don't survive to 65? Does my husband still get the money? And what if I do survive, but something happens to the company and ah, that, the fund? Okay, so that's the more interesting question to me. So you, you, you can just find out from the company, by the way, what are the, what are the spousal benefits if I were to die before annuitization, right? So that's one okay. easy question to ask. Generally speaking, we would have to do a little bit of math, but my guess is that waiting you know, from an actuarial point of view, will yield a better financial return because there's going to be a guarantee associated with that choice of waiting to your retirement age and then getting the couple hundred bucks, right? Yeah. But as you point out, there is a real risk, which is not just that the company mismanages the funds, but that the company goes broke, Right. Because a pension is only as good as the company that's guaranteeing it. And yes, there are probably there there is something called the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation that would probably step in. But here's the other piece of this, which is just because it's, you know, financially it has uh, slightly better odds of delivering a better return. There is also something to be said for consolidation in that it's all in one place. You exactly. can manage it. Oh boy, here she 
Exactly. And so if I could just tell you, so one of the things that I've done over the last couple of years is I love this podcast because I'm a huge fan of Betterment and I consolidated all these different accounts that we had and all these different savings plans we had into Betterment and I check it every single morning when I get to work and I love seeing everything in one place mm-hmm. and I have faith in the controls that are in place. Mm-hmm. Um, both on my end and on their end, and and not to throw my former company under the bus, and I won't say who they are. That's fine. But, um, they did business with one of the companies that was too big to fail, mm-hmm. so that's a concern for me. Mm-hmm. And later, um, they were in some trouble. I mean, they're a massive, multi-multi-billion-dollar company with tens of thousands of employees. Mm-hmm. So. They do a lot of things right, but they did get into some stuff, and they were in the news for how they were were doing some things improperly. And so that control is a concern of mine. So I also want to point out that we are not talking about a ton of money. So maybe right. the other piece of this from your husband, so your husband can take a little bit of solace, is that, I mean, maybe if there were, you know, you say the lump sum is 20000 so maybe um, the the guarantee ends up being a couple of percent better than what you might have gotten on your own. Maybe it's maybe it's not right, but it's not huge money. It's not going to be the bulk of your savings. It's a nice chunk of money today, right? But it's right. not it's not everything. And so, listening to you and your concerns, what I would say is this: I'm going to root and say that I think that. Taking the lump sum, consolidating, maybe giving up a little bit of that guaranteed return is okay. It really is okay. And I'm a big fan for kind of listening to what you are telling me and hearing your concerns and making you feel better about it and also making it easier to keep track of your finances. And I think that you've got everything consolidated. You want everything in one place. You want one game plan. You don't want to have to think about this company doing something dopey. Even if that's a, a tail risk, it's not the most important thing. It's probably not going to happen. I'm going to say, I'm going in with you. Let's let's roll it over, take the lump sum, add it to your account, control the money, be smart. And then, of course, you're going to keep saving for retirement anyway. Like I said, this is going to be a yes. smaller part of this. And the new company, you're putting money into the retirement account at the new company? Oh, yes, yes, yes. And are you maxing out? I think I'm at about 18%. I actually tried to look online yesterday um, in preparation, but I think I'm at about 18%. So I'm on the verge of maxing out, and they also contribute. Then that's great. I mean, if you and your husband are both trying to get, get, you're in your 30s, so, you know, 18 grand a year each, you are going to be just crushing your retirement projection. So, well, I, and he's not at that rate. And so that he's a little bit below me because he's a little bit younger and doesn't make quite as much as I do. So part of the way I wanted to use this money was to fund a Roth IRA through Betterment using some of this money each year. Wait a second. The lump sum is going to come as a rollover, isn't it? It's not going to come in. Are you mean doing a backdoor Roth? Oh, I think it's going to come in as a rollover. I don't think it comes in. My guess is, okay, I'm not 100% sure because I'm not looking at these documents, but my Uh guess is that this is going to come in as a a pension. You would hopefully be able to roll it over into an IRA rollover account 
And that okay. would be avoiding the taxation because otherwise, if you get a check for twenty grand, it's going to be taxable. And I, oh, yeah. I don't yeah. think that it's going to be that way. Usually, pensions you can roll over, you put it into an IRA rollover account. How much do you make a year? The two of us together make about one eighty-five. So you're close to the Roth limit. Uh, at the very, at the very least, just double check with the folks at at the company to say, okay, just so I'm clear, this is a coming in as an IRA rollover as a lump sum that I can avoid taxes on, right? Just double check that, okay. and then let me know what they say. But I presume it will be, and then it's oh, in an IRA rollover account. And as far as making opening up a Roth IRA for him. Okay, great. But, you know, I think more importantly, he's going to put what what I would actually prefer happen is he starts to put more money away in his own retirement account. You can use some of your money to live on to make up for that. But, you know, let him get that discipline. That's a good thing yeah. for him to do. Not that I don't trust him because Mark's laughing at me because he thinks that <laughs> I'm being, you know, I don't want her to put her rollover into his name. No, but I, I want you to just make him aware that the best thing he can do Going forward is put as much money as he possibly can into that retirement account, okay? Okay, great. Thank you so much. Hey, Katie, good luck, and give us a holler and let us know if there's any follow-up questions, okay? Great. Thank you. Take care. Thanks to Rana Faruhar. Go buy her book right now, Makers and Takers, How Wall Street Destroyed Main Street. Don't forget, we've got our bonus episode that comes out on Tuesdays and the longer form every single Thursday. You can subscribe via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Jill on Money. That's at Jill on Money. Just use the hashtag BetterOff. You can also reach me via email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. That's Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. And if you wouldn't mind, please leave us a review or a rating in iTunes. It really will help us out. Better Off is sponsored by Betterment. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Delercio produces. I'm Jill Schlesinger. See you next week. <laughs>